read there from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We were uh, thinking this morning, this afternoon, <laughs> about the, the good life. The good life. I wonder what images uh, come to mind when you, you hear that phrase, the good life. I don't mean the, the TV program that used to be on about subsistence farming, if you uh, know that program. I mean uh, the life that's uh, desirable, the life that people uh, are envious of. Maybe when you think of, of the good life, you think of uh, peace and comfort, a life that's uh, free from stress, uh, the equivalent of kind of kicking back on a, a deck chair and enjoying the sun, a bit like uh, some of you are doing now. Uh, maybe when you think about the good life, you think about wealth, having uh, lots of stuff, uh, maybe lots of land, uh, an estate. Maybe that's what you think about as the good life. Or maybe uh, the good life is just simply about being satisfied, about having a, a full life in, in the here and now. Now imagine if I had a flip chart at the front here uh, and we were going to jot down uh, a list of uh, characteristics or character traits uh, that a person would need if they were going to kind of get the good life. What might we have on that list? You might think uh, if someone's going to kind of obtain that good life, they will need to be a gifted person, a person who is uh, self-confident, a person who, who believes in themselves. You might think uh, a person who's going to kind of carve out uh, the good life uh, will need to be someone of status, someone with a, a really good reputation. We might say uh, if someone's going to uh, grasp the good life for themselves, they'll need to be assertive. They'll need to be someone who's, who's self-assured. We might say they'd need to be uh, self-reliant, someone who, who's got, got it all together. They're able to depend upon themselves. That's the kind of person uh, that the world uh, looks up to. Now hold that picture in your mind. Uh, we're going to come back to that uh, shortly. This morning we're beginning uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this uh, very famous uh, sermon uh, that Jesus gave. It's probably one of the most famous uh, parts of the Bible, and it begins with these uh, Beatitudes. Beatitudes just means blessings. And that's the passage that Edwin uh, read to us. Uh, and these uh, blessings describe the person who has the truly good life. Like I said, this Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the best known parts of the Bible, although it's kind of like uh, found its way into uh, our culture, really. So many phrases that we say in everyday life come out of this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, one of the errors uh, that we can make when we come to this uh, sermon of Jesus is to divorce the uh, teaching of Jesus from the person of Jesus. Some people interpret this Sermon on the Mount as just like some uh, directions, so some helpful directions for how to live. When you uh, get lost in the car, I'm sure it doesn't happen to any of you, but when, when you, if you do get lost in the car and you, you ask for directions, you're not really interested in the person who you're asking directions from. You don't want to know the life story. You, you just want directions. And that's sometimes people's approach to the Sermon on the Mount. Just helpful directions for life. But if we treat the Sermon on the Mount like that, just as some good teaching, we're not really taking it on its own terms. We can see that from the setting. If you look at verses 1 and 2, uh, they describe the setting uh, 
to us something of the context. I'll read them. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. A couple of uh, things that stand out from, from the setting. The first is the place. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the, the mountain. The, the place for this sermon is significant because it, it shows us that Jesus is someone uh, of significance. With any part of the Bible, it's really important that we don't just kind of dive in and tear it out of its context. The context for the Sermon on the Mount is is Matthew's Gospel. And there's been a a story building uh, through Matthew's Gospel already in the first four chapters. If you just uh, flip back, uh, you'll see that there's been a a deliberate uh, retracing of the story of the Exodus. So back in chapter 2, the baby Jesus uh, is taken to Egypt and then he comes up out of Egypt, just exactly the same as the, the people of Israel as they were rescued uh, from Pharaoh's rule. And then in, in chapter 3, uh, we have Jesus uh, out there in the wilderness with this man, John the Baptist, and he passes through the waters, the waters of baptism, J- just like uh, the people of Israel, they, they pass through the waters uh, of the Red Sea. And then in, in chapter 4, we see Jesus again in the wilderness, hungry, 40 days and 40 nights, very similar uh, to the, the, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, hungry, fed by the Lord, tested for 40 years. And then uh, right at the start of chapter 5, the people uh, gather around Jesus and he goes up this mountain. Again, Exodus themes, think Moses on Mount Sinai. And Jesus goes up uh, the mountain and he sits down and teaches the people. Except when Jesus teaches the people, it's clear that he's someone far greater than Moses. Moses, what did he do? He went up the mountain, he received God's word uh, from God, and then he came back down the mountain to teach the people. He was God's spokesman. But it's clear that Jesus is more than just a spokesman. He doesn't teach as someone who is a spokesman. He teaches as one who has all authority. Time and again in this sermon, we'll hear Jesus say this. You have heard it said... And then he'll quote something from the book of Moses. And then he'll say, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And at the end of the sermon, what's people's response? Well, they're left marveling because Jesus teaches as someone who has authority. It's like they've been listening to the king. If we take this sermon on its own terms, we can't simply say uh, that Jesus is just a good teacher, a man with some good ideas. That's often how the sermon is is viewed, isn't it? A set of admirable principles by which we can make a a good society. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Some of Jesus' teaching is picked up by many of the religions and the spiritualities of the world. But it's clear from the context of the sermon, Jesus isn't giving helpful suggestions for a better society. The preacher on the mount is someone who has kingly authority. So that's the place. It's significant because it shows us that Jesus is significant. And then the people, did you see who was, who was gathered around? There's all these crowds, crowd of Israelites. Uh, and then verse one, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. This sermon is, is primarily for Jesus' disciples. Uh, other people are listening in, the crowds are listening, they're, they're, they're welcome to listen in. But the target audience is Jesus' 
disciples. This sermon is for people who are seeking to center their lives on Jesus. They're wanting Jesus' words to shape their aims, their, their values, their, their goals. They're wanting to live in submission to him. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to spell out, perhaps in more detail than anywhere else in the Gospels, what it means to be his disciple, what it means to be his, his follower. As we go through this uh, sermon, we're going to be confronted time and again, yes, by Jesus' words, but also by his, his person, by, by who he is. Usually it's a good thing, isn't it, for a preacher to, to get out of the way and not get in the way of the message. But all the time in this sermon, Jesus is drawing attention to himself. Even just look at verse 11 uh, that we read earlier. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What kind of person says that? Well, the man who has the right to our, our total devotion, that's who. And so the setting here, right at the beginning of, of the sermon, it flags up that we mustn't separate the Sermon on the Mount uh, from the preacher on the Mount, that the two belong together. Let's uh, look at the beginning of, of the sermon and these Beatitudes. That's what this first section is often called. It's probably headed that uh, in your Bibles. The word uh, Beatitudes just means blessing. Uh, and you can see why they're called the Beatitudes, because verses 3 to 10 all begin with that same word, uh, blessed. blessed. Blessed or blessed is the opposite of, of the word curse. It means to be, to be blessed by God. It means to be favored by him. Sometimes uh, translations put the word uh, happiness in there instead of bless. Happy is the one. Our world is on a headlong pursuit uh, for happiness. Uh, the myth is that you can find happiness in experience or happiness in possessions or happiness in, in satisfying your physical desires. But this happiness, this blessing that Jesus is talking about isn't just happiness in general. It's the joy of knowing that you are in a right relationship with God, the one who created you. It's knowing that you have his uh, divine favor. You enjoy his smile. And as you look at these blessings, you can see they all have the same structure, don't they? You have the, the pronouncement of the blessing, blessed. And then you have the description of the person who is blessed. The first one is the poor in spirit. And then you have the reason why they're blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This week, uh, we're going to look at the first four. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the, the last four together. And it's really important that we, we spend time looking at these Beatitudes. Much of the Sermon on the Mount is about uh, how we live, our conduct. But these Beatitudes are about who we are. They're about our, our character. If you look at uh, the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 10, if you've got your Bible with you, you'll see that the end of each of those verses is the same. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are a kind of bookends. The blessed person is the person who's in the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessed person. So these Beatitudes, they describe the character of the Christian. Let's go back uh, to where we started. Think about that. Uh, those character traits, those uh, attributes of a person who's going to carve out uh, the good life for themselves. What do we say? Self-confident, uh, assertive, uh, self-assured. 
those things that our world values. Well, listen to how Jesus describes the blessed man or the blessed woman. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the kind of person that Jesus says has the good life. How, how countercultural is that? That just goes against the grain of the, the kind of thinking of our world, doesn't it? John Stott, in his uh, commentary, he describes the Sermon on the Mount with two words, Christian counterculture. Uh, and we perhaps see that most clearly in these first four Beatitudes. The backdrop uh, to this description of the blessed life, poor in spirit, meek, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is the story of the people of Israel. A rough, a rough th thumbnail sketch. The people of Israel were the people who were called to live in covenant with God. His people lived in a, a, a beautiful promised land. They, they broke covenant. They sinned, they rebelled against God. And as a result, God sent them uh, into exile. They were conquered by their enemies. The exile was a terrible time, a time of loss, a time of uh, sadness, a time of uh, mourning. Uh, but the root of all of that was a broken relationship with God. And Jesus is speaking this sermon. When he's speaking this sermon, the people are no longer in exile. They're, they're back in the land. They've reestablished all the externals of their religion. The temple is, is rebuilt. Their religious activity is ongoing, but their exile isn't over. They're still far from God. And by giving this description of the blessed life, Jesus isn't saying something totally new. He's just uh, bringing some much-needed clarity. During the period of the exile, the prophets have been speaking to God's people. Uh, and I just want to read a couple of extracts from Isaiah and you'll see if you can hear some of the themes of these first four Beatitudes. Listen to what Isaiah was saying while the people were in exile. This is Isaiah 66, uh, verse 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. Then listen to this. These are the ones I will look on with favor those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word here's something of the beatitudes there what about this from isaiah 61 the spirit of the sovereign lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. So when Jesus picks up the, the language of Isaiah in these uh, Beatitudes, he's not saying uh, blessed are the, the poor, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are those uh, who are hungry and thirsty generally. He's talking about a spiritual state. 
He's speaking about poverty and mourning and meekness that these people were experiencing as a result of their exile and sin. The person Jesus is describing is someone who recognizes that before God they're spiritually poor. Before God, their sin gives them every reason to mourn. Someone who sees themselves as meek because they have a right estimation of themselves before, before God. That's the blessed person. Let's think uh, really quickly just about each of these uh, four descriptions. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in, in spirit is to recognize that when it comes to having a right relationship with God, we just bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer. It's the, it's the spiritual equivalent of knowing that you've got massive debts, but when you go to the, the cash machine and you put your bank card in, you've already used all your overdraft. It's the spiritual equivalent of, of coming home, starving hungry, and opening the kitchen covers and finding that there's nothing there. Poor in spirit know that they have nothing. Uh, they possess nothing that can make them commendable to God. Again, uh, that's a, a corrective, isn't it, to the way some people see the Sermon on the Mount. Some people see this Sermon on the Mount as a, as a ladder uh, to climb by which we can uh, somehow earn brownie points with God, by a way that we can earn ourselves in the kingdom. But right from the start, we read that the blessed life or the blessed person is the one who recognizes that they're spiritually bankrupt. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. Like I said, Jesus is not just pronouncing a blessing on anyone who mourns generally. This is mourning over a spiritual state, mourning because of, of sin. Last week we read Psalm 51, didn't we? David's uh, psalm of, of confession. And that psalm expressed David's sorrow because he recognized who he was before God. You remember he said, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In a, in a culture where uh, self-esteem is highly prized, those words are a kind of jarring note, aren't they? Some people would say David's words are dangerous. They, they'd pack him off to the psychiatrist. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be, be comforted. I don't know if you notice, but apart from the first and last uh, beatitude, all the others are kind of, uh, the pronouncement is future tense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Future tense. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Future tense. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Future and they are, they are future blessings. But they are future blessings that are already breaking into the present. See, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom has, has come. And for those who belong to Jesus, something of those, those future blessings are already uh, breaking into the present. So living in this world for those who belong to the kingdom of God is this, this strange mix of Mourning and comfort. It's not all mourning over sin, but it's not only 
comfort, it's this strange mix. Number three, blessed are the meek. A meek person is, is simply someone who has a, a right estimation of themselves before God. Sinclair uh, Ferguson, I think, describes it helpfully like this. The meek person has stood before God's judgment and let go of all his supposed rights. The meek person has learned in gratitude to God's grace to submit themselves to the Lord and to be gentle with sinners. See, someone who is, is meek doesn't trust in their own ideas and their own strength. They happily submit to God's ways and God's timing, even if that means difficult times. The meek wait for God to work and they, they trust his ways. And Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. What about number four? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst are pretty powerful drivers, aren't they? I don't think we know too much about hunger and thirst in our culture. A few years ago, I read a, a book uh, called Unbroken, a fantastic book. Uh, if anyone's looking for a good biography to read, uh, it's a life of a man called Louis Zamprini. Uh, he had a very eventful life. It's uh, true that, that sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, and and at, at one point in his life, uh, He's part of the Royal Air Force and his plane uh, crashes into the sea. Uh, he's in the middle of the ocean and he and a friend survive at sea for 33 days. He talks about the thirst uh, and the hunger. They were kind of catching rainwater where they could. They, uh, I think they survived off some fish that they caught and a couple of albatross <laughs> that they managed to, to capture. They were desperate. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on the person who is desperate for righteousness. Here, here is someone who knows they're a spiritual pauper, and yet they're desperate to be right with God. They're desperate to walk rightly before God. Jesus says of such a person, they're blessed because they will be filled. Like I said, these beatitudes describe the Christian. These describe someone who believes the gospel. None of these uh, character traits come naturally to us. They're worked in us by the grace of God as we hear the good news about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, it leaves no place for pride, does it, or self-righteousness. The church that gives off uh, the stench of, of spiritual superiority has lost its way. As I looked at these Beatitudes, I was reminded of a verse from a, a song, uh, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee to dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I wonder what you uh, make of those uh, characteristics this morning. Jesus says such a person is, is blessed. Maybe you're listening uh, today and you would call yourself a Christian. But the blessed life that Jesus describes, these attitudes are foreign to you. 
In fact, these attitudes seem even undesirable to you. To be poor in spirit, to be mourning, to be meek, to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know nothing of that. Well, if that's the case, your Christianity is no Christianity at all. And it's much better to find that out now rather than later. I'm sure for, for many listening, you read the first half of these Beatitudes and you love the description that you see there. You see something of your, yourself there. You know that you have nothing to make yourself commendable to God. You daily feel the, the pain of your own sin. You see yourself as small before the one who made you. And you long to be more like Jesus. Well, if that's you, the word that Jesus pronounces over you is blessed. Blessed are you. You live in the, the good life. And we need to remember this, don't we? <laughs> we need to remember this because we, we live in a world where we're bombarded with with countless uh, words that tell us the good life looks like something different. But it's not. Jesus tells us this is the good life. I want to close with a, a prayer that uh, comes from a book that I have of, at home called The Valley of Vision. And this prayer captures the upside-down nature of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Should we uh, bow our heads and we'll pray together? Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you've brought us to the valley of vision where we live in the depths, but we see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, we behold your glory. Teach us, Lord, that the way up, the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that the valley is the place of vision. Amen. We're going to have a couple of songs together as we respond to...